Father God, we are so thankful that you reached down and you met us. God, that you loved man so much that you sent your son. And God, in doing so, your light, heaven's light, did shine down into this. And Father God, this Christmas season, as we consider the promise of a Messiah and what that means and what that meant and what it means for our future, Father God, I pray that you would help us to not forget what you did by sending Jesus to this earth. Father God, may we be ever aware of what you were doing to reconcile mankind. And God, may we remember the reason that you sent Jesus was to save all mankind. God, this year as we consider the promise, I pray that you would bring to our minds often what that promise was about, why you wanted to reconcile mankind, and God, how you did it through your son, Jesus. Help us to understand that fact. Help us to, to, for it to sink into who we are as people this Christmas season. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. Hope you're doing well this morning. For those of you I don't know and for those who may be listening to our podcast, my name's Todd. I'm the pastor here and so glad that you've joined with us here as we kick off a three-part, or excuse me, a four-part series called The Promise. And uh, during this series, we're going to be considering what the promise was, why we celebrate this person called Jesus, the one who was promised the great Messiah. And so during this Christmas season here in 2011, we are going to be taking a look at some different passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament, but one in particular in the Old Testament we're going to focus on to take a look at what that promise was all about. Uh, Christmas time is interesting. It's all about waiting, isn't it? Christmas time is all about waiting. You know, leading up to Christmas time, kind of uh, Thanksgiving, you're, you're waiting for uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, right? You're, you're waiting for those events to arrive. Guys, aren't we waiting with those events to arrive? No, we're waiting for it to pass. We wait for letters to arrive in the mailbox. We, uh, we, we wait for that package to be on our door, doorstep. Um, we wait for Grandma and Grandpa to come to our house and arrive safely. And then we wait for grandma and grandpa to leave our house before the New Year's. It's a season of waiting, isn't it? Christmas season is a season of waiting. And it's interesting because all of this waiting, whatever it is, whether it's something spiritual, whether it's something physical, whether it's something financial, it's all based around a promise. I mean, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, the promise of a good deal. <laughs> You know, you wait for that piece of mail to come with the promise of maybe some cash in there, right? <laughs> you, you wait for that package to arrive and the kids are waiting for the promise of what? A, a, a shiny new toy, you know, a train or whatever the case may be. We have the promise of grandma and grandpa coming to the house and we hope that we have the promise of grandma and grandpa leaving the house at some point in time. It's all about waiting on a promise. That's what the Christmas season is really all about is we remember the promise that God made, I want you to catch this, with humanity itself, and we celebrate the fact that humanity waited on this great promise, this wonderful promise that God gave us so long ago. I think that one of the greatest parts of a promise is the waiting. And I never liked waiting. Who does like waiting for something to come? No one likes to wait for something to come, but we all have to wait, don't we? 
Every year this time we break out the uh, Christmas DVD collection. We have it in a green little uh, sleeve in our house and we break it out and um, I'm kind of a Scrooge. I don't let the kids get into that during the year, but then we break it out. And one of the ones that uh, I like to watch is a Christmas story. You guys all know the story of Ralphie Parker, don't you? Ralphie Parker and his little brother, Randy. And it's interesting because a Christmas story is a, it's a movie that you've probably seen. It's about a middle, uh, a Midwestern kind of middle class family back in the 1920s or 30s and struggling with all that that age and that time and that location kind of came with. But it's interesting because this story about Ralphie Parker and his little brother Randy really isn't as much about them as it is about Ralphie waiting on certain things. I mean, it's interesting because Ralphie was waiting on a secret code to come in the mail. Do you remember this if you've seen the movie? He's waiting for that secret code to come. And that secret code arrives in the mail and he listens to that radio station and they, they gave a great promise of something. And what happens? He listens to it and he decodes that letter that came in the mail based on the radio program. And what results? As Ralphie says, a crummy ad. That promise results in a crummy ad for Ovaltine. And so Ralphie is severely disappointed. But Ralphie's waiting for something else, isn't he? He's waiting for something else that he's been talking about. He's waiting for an official Red Rider carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle, isn't he? And he says it to Santa there in Gimbals, and Santa replies, and he says, You'll shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> and the whole movie is centered around poor old Ralphie. And every time he speaks to an adult, every time he has an opportunity to talk to someone about his air rifle, his BB gun, they say, you're going to shoot your eye out. And so Christmas time comes and Christmas time almost passes. And they're in the Parker home. They're done with Christmas. And this promise that Ralphie was going to receive, all of a sudden, time is going by and things are waning. And all of a sudden, Ralphie's coming to the realization that this promise may not be fulfilled, except that his dad has made a special surprise, and he's wrapped it, and it's there in the corner. And Ralphie goes after everything's done that day, and he rips that open, and he grabs that gun, and he runs outside, and he takes his first shot, and with his first shot, what does he do? He almost shoots his eye out. <laughs> you got to love Ralphie and Randy Parker. Man, we have some of those moments in our house. Waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. It's what Christmas time is all about. We have our Advent wreath here and our Advent candles. And during the Christmas season, the church for centuries has celebrated the Advent. And that word Advent literally means the arrival or the coming. And so we as a church, we celebrate waiting on Jesus to come. We wait and we celebrate the, this as, in this aspect of Christmas the arrival of the promised one. It's interesting because I think that we can all get our minds, no matter where we are spiritually, no matter if we've kind of come back to God or we're coming back to God or if we're far away from God, we can kind of get our minds around uh, the fact that God gave us a promise and that this promise was to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But what's difficult for us to do, I believe, is to get our minds around exactly what that promise was all about. Scripture in the Old Testament Scripture, there are over 400 scholars tell us over 400 different prophecies about Jesus Christ. And so over these next four weeks, we're going to talk about every single one of them. No, we're just going to talk about four of these prophecies. We're going to talk about four prophecies that, that in the Old Testament, the, the, the prophet Isaiah gave us 
talking about this promised one, talking about this arrival. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 9. We're going to be there primarily kind of using that passage as our springboard over the uh, course of these next few weeks. You know that of these 400 prophecies, do you know how many Jesus fulfills of those 400 prophecies? I want you to catch this. Scholars tell us that he fulfills all of them. Every single prophecy all the way back in the Old Testament centuries earlier centuries earlier that God would send a prophet. You know, the word prophet literally means a watchman. And back in the Old Testament, those, wa those watchmen or those prophets were there to keep watch over God's people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. But as time went on, they began to prophesy about Jesus' coming. And it's interesting because as we approach prophecies, sometimes we approach them very much from a cerebral or from an academic standpoint. I want to challenge that process over these next four weeks. You know, it's interesting. I, I love studying prophecies. I grew up in the church and went to college and went to seminary and we studied different prophecies. And oftentimes, especially Old Testament prophecies, are kind of relegated, aren't they, to just our minds. But I want to challenge that a little bit this morning. And as we take a look at just these four prophecies, all wrapped up in just one verse over the course of these next few weeks, I want us to let that simmer down into our minds. And I want it to challenge our thinking. I want us to have knowledge about what God promised in the Messiah. But I also want it to seep down into our hearts and begin to change our attitudes. But especially, I want that to spark our lives and change our actions. Because God did not send an idle baby into this world. He sent a change agent in the Messiah. And he can change our lives as well. Many of you have probably seen or heard or maybe even been to a performance of Handel's Messiah. And we all have our favorite parts of Handel's Messiah. There's the Hallelujah Chorus. I'll spare you the pain of me singing that right now. We all have our favorite parts. Most people love that part, the Hallelujah Chorus right there. But my favorite part is in, it's broken up into scenes and sections and all that. And so I, I like uh, in, in one of the sections, there's scene 12. It's part one and it ends with a, a, a song that he wrote, that great author wrote, uh, For unto us a child is born. And what George Frederick Handel does is he uses Isaiah 9 as the scriptural basis for this particular portion. And he accurately, and I believe with great inspiration, wrote a piece of music that's probably one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written. And he writes direct from the words of Isaiah 9, For the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so over the course of these next four weeks, we're going to take a look at each one of those prophecies that Isaiah gave us and that Handel got right in his writing. Take a look at Isaiah 9. He takes it right off the page there. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now remember, this is ages and ages and ages before Jesus comes into the world. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's take a look at that first one this morning. Wonderful Counselor. I absolutely love that. But what does it mean? It sounds good in a beautiful song, but what exactly does it mean that he will be called Wonderful Counselor? 
For ages, scholars have debated this. Theologians have talked about this because many theologians for a long time believed that when Isaiah was writing those words that he was writing actually five different descriptions. That Jesus was wonderful in and of itself and that he was counselor and then everlasting God or everlasting father, mighty God and prince of peace. And so for ages, we've kind of thought that perhaps Isaiah was speaking of two separate things in wonderful and counselor. But as time has gone on, theologians and scholars have kind of looked for clues that maybe that wasn't the case because he uses multiple words. Isaiah literally in the Hebrew uses multiple words to describe each one of those things. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and then of course Prince of Peace. And so if you take that back and take a look at Wonderful Counselor, nowadays we kind of consider that that is one title and adjective describing what type of counselor Jesus was. And so we're going to take a look at these together, that he was a wonderful counselor. But we have to understand those words, don't we? We have to understand exactly what does that mean? What does it mean that centuries before Jesus was born, Isaiah, this watchman for Israel, described what the baby Jesus would be? What does it mean when he said wonderful counselor? Well, the word counselor, I'll start with that. The word counselor is not dissimilar to what we talk about in counseling today. Uh, many of you, including myself, we've been to counseling and we go to people for guidance. And that's what a counselor does. And so Isaiah is saying that Jesus would be a counselor. Now, the Holy Spirit's a counselor. I'll get to that in a moment. But Isaiah is speaking here and prophesying that Jesus would be one who guides, one who advises one who gives counsel to people when they need it. But I want you to catch the first word there, that adjective, that one that says wonderful. What does that exactly mean? Well, it's an interesting word, and it's only used in its form one other time in Scripture. And if you take a look, it's used one other time in Scripture, back in, in Judges, when the angel of the Lord met Manoah, Samson's father, and to confirm that his wife, Manoah's wife, was miraculously pr uh, pregnant with Samson, Manoah asked the angel, what is your name? And the angel responded and said this. And by the way, that angel was a, uh, a, a theophany, which is an appearance of God in the Old Testament. He says, what is your name? And he says, why? The angel responds and says, why do you ask my name? It is, and he uses the Hebrew word there, meaning, catch this, beyond understanding. See, Isaiah was saying that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. He was going to save the earth, but that he would provide counsel that's beyond our understanding. And it wasn't talking about our understanding intellectually or academically or our ability to know. What he was talking about is the counsel that Jesus would provide would be absolutely and utterly amazing. I've talked to many of you who have said to me, you know, I, I've been reading God's word for years. And boy, something just popped out on the pages to me. And it made me change my life. And beyond my comprehension, I've had life change. And that's exactly what that word means. Our Messiah, the promised one, the one that was promised so many thousands of years before now and hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, was described as a counselor that would give counsel that's beyond our understanding. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? That he would give us counsel beyond our understanding. Well, what does that mean practically for us today? 
What does that mean in everyday life? What does that mean to us as we live our lives? I want to give us three points and discover three points this morning of application. Because when we say that Jesus, the promised one, is a wonderful counselor, I believe there's at least three things that that means. And first of all, it's this, that we can know that Jesus understands our issues. We can know that Jesus understands our issues. I don't have a teenager in my house yet. <laughs> that day is coming very quickly, and sometimes I think it's already there, but it's definitely not because our kids are seven and four. But I remember times growing up when my parents, and my parents are in town today, and if they show up, this is going to be mortifying, but that's okay. Uh, I remember times growing up when my parents would say that I can't do something that I wanted to do. And I would have this kind of attitude, gosh, you don't understand. How many of you have had that growing up? Gosh, you don't understand mom and dad kind of attitude. And I was the kind of kid that I wouldn't give voice to that, but I would give the attitude with it. <laughs> Some of us are like that, aren't we? And we have this kind of, gosh, mom and dad, you just don't understand. And you know, it's interesting. We do that as teenagers. We can do that as people. We have seven and four-year-olds that even can do that sometimes. But you know what? We do that same thing with Jesus. We kind of have this attitude of, how can he help me? He doesn't understand. I mean, this is the Son of God. The Bible says that he's the perfect Son of God. How can a perfect person understand my temptation? How can someone who was the Son of the Almighty God understand my pain? How can he in any form or fashion understand the emotions that I'm going through because of the trauma in my life? Well, it's interesting because the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer to the, gosh, Jesus can't understand my problems problem. And he does it throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is an interesting book because it's written to Christians who were once Jews. It's written to those Jewish people who became Christ followers, followers of the way. And what the writer of Hebrews does all throughout the book, it's a fascinating book, is he tries to speak to those who were Jewish uh, about Jesus through the lens, through Hebrew lenses, through those lenses of people who uh, uh, were Jewish. And, and so he's writing a book, he's writing a whole message to help people who once were Jews, who came to know Christ, to help them to understand what it means that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, the fact that Jesus was the Messiah in and of itself would have been absolutely and utterly shocking to most Jewish people. But then they had to get their minds around that they were putting their faith and their trust in this Messiah. And so at Hebrews 2.11 would have been shocking to a good Jew. The writer says that both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. That would have been absolutely shocking to a good Jew. And then in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says that Jesus, the Son of God, catch this, shared in the humanity of humans. That would have been shocking. But I want you to catch the message for us today in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. It says this, For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of people. Verse 18, Because he himself, what? Suffered. When he was what? Tempted. And he is able to help those who are being tempted. The moment that we have that 
gosh, Jesus just doesn't understand my problems. We need to remember what the writer of Hebrews said, that he understands our deepest pain. He understands our deepest temptation. He understands the greatest suffering that we can go through. I'm often as a pastor called to meet people for counseling and uh, they come in for a variety of reasons and, and I'm not a licensed counselor and I always start off by saying that. Uh, I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm not even trained as a pastor but, or as a counselor, but as a pastor, I'm qualified to give coaching, life coaching from a biblical perspective. Do you know the areas that I'm best at counseling in? Those areas that I've struggled through. Absolutely, bar none, all the training in the world can prepare me to help counsel someone in the areas that I personally have struggled through. Jesus, I want you to catch this. Jesus struggled as a human just like you and just like me. And therefore, he is one that we can trust to provide counsel. Look at what Hebrews 4.15 says. Because you may have the idea that, well, he may have suffered with some things. He may have been tempted with certain things, but he still doesn't understand my issues. Take a look at what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted, what? In every way. In every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Jesus understands our suffering. Jesus understands our issues. Jesus understands what we're going through. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I have had, how many, how many classes do you think I've had at Liberty at, in university in counseling? Let me just tell you, zero. I'm going through seminary. Do you know how many classes I've had in counseling? Zero classes in counseling. I, somebody said it. I probably counseled you. Anyway, <laughs> are you feeling more or less confident calling me for counseling now? Okay, anyway, I probably just cleared my week's schedule. Anyway, there's one thing that I do know as a counselor. When you're counseling someone, there are two things that happen. The counselor, the one that is giving counsel, is speaking some sort of counsel. And you know what the other one is? The other one is, wait for it, this is pretty deep, receiving the counsel. <laughs> wow, that's deep, Todd. Yeah, one's speaking the counsel and the other's receiving. That's the way the relationship goes. One person speaks the counsel and the other one receives the counsel. And Jesus has reason to understand because he went through suffering. He was tempted and so when we have the opportunity to say, or when we're tempted to say, but he just doesn't understand, remember that Jesus does understand our issues. He understands what we're going through. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Because the promise is a wonderful counselor, we can be assured that the counsel Jesus offers us can lead to life change. The counsel that Jesus offers can lead to life change. Turn with me to John 4 if you have your Bibles. Jesus, when Jesus enters the picture of humanity, there is, I want you to catch this, there's always an opportunity for life change to happen. When Jesus enters the picture of humanity, there is always an opportunity for life change to happen. He can always change a life. Now there's a caveat and I'll get that to that in a moment. 
But in his just his short time on earth, Jesus provided counsel to many of those he came into contact with. This is the story of the woman at the well. I absolutely love this story. Let's take a look. We'll read parts of John 4 here. So he came down in Samaria to a town in Samaria called uh, Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus says to her, Will you give me a drink? Verse 8 says his disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman says to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, would you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Oh boy, this is a setup right here. That's a setup question right there. Where can you get this living water? I mean, Jesus is probably like, yeah, all right. This is it. This is what I wanted her to ask. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and also did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give will become in him a spring of welling water, or of living water, uh, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not get thirsty and have come to, uh, to keep here to draw water. Verse 16, he told her, and this is where Jesus gets in to some counseling, go and call your husband awkward moment for the Samaritan woman at this point. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have five and the man that you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Do you see the lady's life beginning to change at this point? Skip down to verse 25. They have a little more dialogue and then the woman says this, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. Okay, now do you see what Jesus has done? He's begun talking to her about something physical and all of a sudden it's, be, it's turned in to a spiritual conversation. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Whoa, wow. The Samaritan woman at this point, her life is beginning to change. Look at verse 28 here. Then leaving her water jar, she just left at that point. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Take a look at 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town then believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because his words, uh, uh, be, and because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, "We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world." Jesus's words can provide life change in a person's life. This isn't the only time that he counseled. And in this particular case, he was counseling spiritually, but he was also counseling, counseling physically. He was also talking with her about her life circumstances. It wasn't just spiritual. He was providing material, emotional, and spiritual counseling in just one conversation. Jesus's words can provide counsel. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, believed. 
Jesus, is call, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and they believed. Many people listened to his words, they obeyed, and they were healed. Jesus' counsel didn't just stop with the emotional and the physical, or uh, emotional and the material, it went to the physical. Augustine was a womanizing wild man, and Jesus got a hold of his life, and he became the, one of the greatest church fathers in those early centuries of the church. Chuck Colson was a Watergate, was the main guy behind the Watergate mastermind, behind the Watergate crime, and was a convicted criminal. And Jesus got a hold of his life, and he listened to Jesus' counsel. And now he's the leader of one of the greatest prison ministries in the world. Jesus got a hold of my life. And for some of you in here, he got a hold of your life. Jesus' words provide counsel. But there's a caveat. I told you that earlier. And that brings us to our last point this morning. Because Jesus is a promised, wonderful counselor, we must be willing to listen and obey the counsel of Jesus in our lives. His words, his commands, his encouragement can provide life change beyond our imagination. Where are you this morning at listening to the words of Jesus? Take a look at what Jesus says in John 14, 21. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. Verse 24 says this, uh, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to my father who sent me. All of this I've spoken while still with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He provides counsel through his words through his encouragement, through his direction in the holy word of God. But you know what, church? We have to be willing to be ready and have listening ears and obey the words of Jesus in our lives. When we do that, when we do that, we make the promise that Isaiah gave us all the way back in Isaiah 9, we make that true in our own lives. It's already true for humanity. He is the wonderful counselor. He is a counselor that gives counsel beyond understanding for the world. But what does that mean to you this morning? Where are you with Jesus? Where are you with listening to the words of Jesus? You know, God sent a baby, quiet little baby on a silent night. We sing about it, don't we? On a starry night in Bethlehem. But God didn't send a baby to live an idle life. He sent a promised Messiah that offers counsel beyond anything that we can imagine. How's he changing your life? What's he doing in your life right now? What are maybe the words of Jesus that you've read or that you've heard or that you've listened to that you haven't applied yet to your life? This Christmas season, make Jesus, the promised one, the wonderful counselor in your life and listen and obey to the words that he speaks and the words that he's speaking in your life right now. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for that wonderful counselor. God, I thank you that you sent him into the world and that part of the transaction, part of the relationship between you and us, part of the narrative of you redeeming mankind 
is the fact that you lead and you guide and you advise. And you do that through your word. You do it now through the Holy Spirit. But God, the words of Jesus can lead us. They can advise us. They can counsel us. But they won't make change until we're ready to listen and to obey those words of Jesus. And God, I pray this morning in the strong name of Jesus that you would raise up a group of people who want to make Jesus their wonderful counselor, a counselor who gives counsel beyond comprehension, beyond understanding. God, I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would do that this Christmas season in the hearts and the lives of those who are in this room. God, do it in my life. God, there may be things that you've been telling us to do, that you've been teaching us, that you've been reminding us of that you said and we've quite frankly been ignoring it and God I pray that you would pierce our hearts and that you would provide great counsel in our hearts and in our spirits and God I pray that would lead us to action and God I pray that that would lead to a changed life God I pray for those who may be in here and they are struggling struggling with a sin with a temptation with something in their life that they didn't even cause that's pulling them down. God, I pray in the strong name of Jesus that you would be their counselor because you understand there's nothing that we can go through that you won't understand. And I pray that you would do that in the strong name of Jesus. And this morning, God, for those who are in here who don't know you as their Savior, Father, I pray that they would listen to your words and that they would obey you, God, that they would follow you in salvation. You tell us that you give us eternal life if we would accept you as our Savior. And God, I pray that there may be people in this room who do that even today. Father God, I pray for those who have never heard the words of Jesus, never really listened. I pray that they would accept you even this morning. If you're in here this morning, maybe a friend brought you, maybe you've been in church a thousand times in the past, but you've never given your life to Christ. Why not do that right now? Don't let another day pass before you know that you know that you know that you have salvation through this baby who came to save the world. If you're in here and you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, I'm just going to invite you to quietly in your heart pray a prayer. I'll say it out loud. You can say it in the quietness of your heart. It goes like this. God, thank you for making me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to save the world. And today, Jesus, I confess of my sins and I want to today ask you to be my Savior. Thank you for giving me eternal life one day in heaven with you because of the promise. Today, I give my life to you you prayed that prayer just in the quietness of this room with every head bowed and every eye closed I'm just going to simply ask you to slip your hand up I'm, I won't embarrass you I promise I just want to pray for you anyone here God I thank you that you are with us that you're changing us and that it's truly only Jesus that can really provide life change in our lives God help us to seek you out the wonderful counselor as Isaiah said help us to look to you to listen and to obey your words. In Jesus' name I pray.